This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. What's good, fam? It's your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm D to ED, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Today, we have a pretty cool one. We are going to periodically revisit the Empower Conference from last year to give you guys a taste of what you could be missing out on if you don't join us in Austin, Texas with the Empower Conference that is powered by SAEM, one of the largest physician emergency medicine groups out there. So check out the show notes where you can find easy ways to go and register for that. We would love to have you guys. We're going to have a ton of fun and really looking forward to you guys. But let's transition to Frank. All right, folks, thanks. Um, I probably should have done a slide up front, huh? Uh, 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 why are Frank's slides not looking like anyone else? A, he doesn't read emails. B, he he's a boomer and he didn't know how to switch. C, he doesn't do anything like anybody else because he doesn't really like anybody else. I don't know. We're going to just skip. I got 30 slides, 22 minutes. Let's get to the meat. If you can't figure out the objectives, I don't really care. I'm not telling you up front. I'm going to throw as much at you as I can in this time, and you'll learn from whatever you need to learn for yourself. I'm not a big fan of CE departments. So I'm going to skip this for right now. We get them again at the, oh, no, that didn't work out right. Let's go to here. And I do want to give a little background. I could talk about it. There's two things really on the slide, and I don't care if um, you you have a chance to read it all or not. One is I've been, my job at the University of Illinois, uh, my residency was 84 to 85. Um, I was in the ED for really 10 years there. I ran a program. I've been with Toxicon since 99. Now that is the medical backup for the Illinois Poison Center. So every day I get to attend rounds when I can, and hear about the cases the Illinois Poison Center referred for medical backup. So I get to see a lot of talks compared to a lot of other people. And, and that's one of the reasons why I call myself It's All Talks, because it, it always is. And then during this talk, I'm going to occasionally say that here's a study or here's a this. Talks is terrible for really good scientific investigation. And so a lot of what we do, I call voodoo. Um, it's made up. It sounds logical. People go, oh, sure. They drink Kool-Aid. And, and, and on other times, once you get gray and bald for the men and uh, you, you get referred to as eminence-based instead of evidence-based medicine, I'm just going to try and point out how much of what we do with Tylenol is a pile of crap. <clears throat> now, this was by far as a resident, the single easiest ingestion I took care of. My on-call program as a resident was ED-based. We were there from five at night to seven in the morning and our weekend call shifts were 24 hours uh, consecutively. And Tylenol was the ingestion. We had to see all the ingestions, all the asthmatics, a couple of other things all the time, all the seizure patients. The, the poisonings were easy, especially if they were Tylenol, which is one of our most common, because you just used oral NAC. There was no other choices. And we did the FDA approved protocol. And I'm going to, I really have this slider because I want people to see a couple of things on it big time. I don't even know if you know how, so few people do it anymore. So 140 per kilo oral 
and then 70 per kilo for four hours for 17 doses. It was usually started after you had a four hour level or something drawn after four hours to confirm that it was above the line, which in the United States meant conservative practice meant above the lower line. And, um, and then we, what we would do is we would take the product. I, now, this is a travesty in my mind. We did things all the time thinking everybody knows how to do it and never wrote up how we were doing it. And it's amazing when I start talking about the IV administration of the inhalational mucomist, you can't find this written up anywhere, hardly at all. But we would dilute it in a non-alcoholic beverage, uh, usually to uh, 3%, although very few people, they just filled the cup, put a lid on it, put a straw in it, taped the straw, did everything you did to decrease the odor. Um, all kinds of recommendations, like everything in chat all day today, it appears that every city has its own drink du jour or or whatever. And uh, Fresca is what's most commonly referred to in print. I particularly found um, Hawaiian punch to be the most effective. I hated drinking it myself. And I, I, that's the Hawaiian punch. I never, uh, and, and you often hear people talk about the reason to do all this, to limit the olfactory, the smell and the odor. And I'm going to start with something you're going to hear a couple more times today. And one is, don't we all talk about olfactory fatigue or olfactory paralysis with hydrogen sulfide gas. And that's why it kills people because they get knocked. It smells horrible, but they knock down so fast they can't leave. Well, you know, people, if they can get past that first dose or two a knack, they seem to stop smelling it because they were in the room with the damn cup. And the only people who really complained about the nausea and the smell all the time were the healthcare workers going in and out. So you're treating yourself or are you treating your patient? And I did this thousands of times over the 1984 to 2004 timeframe where I was in the ED and or helping assist treating these patients. So back off if you say it smells too bad, not unless you're given it. If they got puked, we gave them another dose. Uh, if they puked after two or three hours, we didn't because we assumed the liquid, assumed the liquid had been uh, absorbed. If vomiting occurred with the second dose, then we would switch to IV, taking the inhalational product that we were giving PO and compounding it for IV, or we would pre-treat with an anti-emetic. And we had very few patients. I can think, I can't even count any. I don't remember one offhand that refused to take some, some series of doses. Now, nowadays, it's a little bit different. We have this oral regimen, which is unchanged. And over the course of 20 hours, you're averaging a dose of, of uh, with the maintenance doses of 17 milligrams per kilo per hour, but it's being given Q4. And you get a total dose over that 20 hour period of time with the oral regimen of 490 milligrams per kilo, which is kind of important. That's if, if you give a dose exactly at 20 hours. Um, if you were if you were to go give the one at, tw uh, at 20, if you're to count only from 16 onwards, so one less maintenance dose, you'd be giving 420 milligrams per kilo. Now, the original IV regimen was 150 over 15 minutes, the very beginning, but then they thought that they were seeing reactions or intolerance, not well described at all, not specific. And so that 600 milligram per kilo per hour rate that was given for the loading dose dropped down to being given over an hour. So that's going to drop down to 150 milligrams per kilo per hour for an hour. And then you end up really on this chronic maintenance dose of 6.25 milligrams per kilo per hour. So when you originally go back and you look at the PO, the original PO regimen using the inhalational product in the United States versus the UK and the rest of Europe using the IV, the, the difference was the oral smelled, yes, 
the IV may be uh, an infusion reaction. And there was a, a fairly substantial difference in total dose over that first day. Then acetidote came out in 2004. And, and where we are now, this is my understanding, talking to people this week, this past couple of weeks, we still give the 150 per kilo over an hour, and then the 12.5 and the 6.25, as always, we use three bags or two or one, or instead of just making a bag up for 20 hours, we just go for 24 to not be bothered making the second bag up if they haven't met some kind of endpoint. And, and that's where we are now. Well, let's, what's in between? What is this all based on? Where are we coming from? All right. Now, prior to 2004, if I had a patient who couldn't take that oral regimen that I described previously, we would draw up from the 10 ml 20% mucomist inhalational product. And then people did a variety of things, inject through a 0.22 filter, micron filter needle, that would be me, into a liter bag. Um, hated it, very hard to do, if, if too much work for the pharmacist. So of course, I would draw it up and put it into a smaller bag or send it to the nurse to put it into a smaller bag. And then, and then the voodoo starts. Um, the only thing you can find published anywhere anymore is dilute to 1000 mLs. But I know we never did that. We used 100 or 250s or usually 250s was enough except for the loading dose because the maintenance doses, you could fill a large part of that bag with the dose, the majority of the bag would fill with the dose you wanted to give, and then you would QS up with B5. Well, we never actually went for 3% solutions. We just tried to keep it to a bag. Nobody knows what the actual concentrations were. Now you would argue back, but Frank, good pharmacists back then would not do that if they didn't have stability and, and, and precipitation and all that other stuff, you know, from um, the IV handbook, Trissel's handbook of drugs, and yet, no, we just did it this way all the time. Um, poison centers might not think so, but this is what we were doing. And we gave individual bags with every dose, which is how I know we didn't dilute every dose to a liter, because that'd be six liters of free water a day, just through the, the, the NAC if we were giving it. So no, that, that was a problem. Now we did, I would actually prefer to draw it up from the syringe, put it in the bag and put the 0.22 micron filter needle for bacterial sterility between the bag and the pump or the pump into the patient. Uh, putting it into the pump, it was really hard to do. And the nurses argued about that. Putting it on the back end of the pump, the pumps in the eighties, the mid to late eighties, they got a lot of back pressure fails because it was just too hard to get through that filter needle. And, uh, and that ended up not being so, we, had a, we did have some delays there. So we really kind of pushed for that oral therapy up front if we could. And we got away with it most of the time. Uh, we often delayed. We deliberately waited because all the data said you had at least eight hours. Uh, and ideally, the best results were under 10 if you waited to make sure that you had to treat the patient because they lie way too many times, which is why I hate the milligram per kilo history crap that somebody was talking about for something earlier today. And we had our own assay machine. It was something the pharmacist did in the ED back then because it was allowed uh, until they outlawed it by the American College of Pathology. And uh, we would run our results. We wouldn't, we wouldn't let the blood coagulate. We'd spin it down right away, put it in a machine. It was a SIVA QST. And, uh, and then we would have a level within 30 minutes of being drawn from the patient. So we would be able to start NAC up to even as late as seven hours after the ingestion. If they came in at one hour, we could wait six. And, and then but we didn't. If they came in at six hours, we didn't start right away. We could wait till seven. And in that regard, 
we then all had gave ourselves some individualization opportunities based on confirming that the patient needed it. And whenever possible, as soon as the patient appeared to be able to tolerate it, either by waking up, improving, other things wearing off, responding to Narcan, yada, yada, we would switch back to PO as quickly as we could. All right, so there we were. Used to be easy. There's the regimen again. But, oh, sometimes, especially back in the day when I started, we would have to do other co-ingestants would be there, things that we were really worried about besides acetaminophen. And I saw a lot of bad acetaminophen aspirin ingestions where people were in the 80-80 club or the 100-100 club, which is really unpleasant. And, and even worse than aspirin and acetaminophen together was somebody who OD'd on acetaminophen and then one of the theophylline products, which I'll spell the name in chat later because none of you have probably ever heard of theophylline, but it was something I staked my early career on as a toxicologist and then nobody used it anymore and I became, um, and, well, useless. So what, we, what would you do when you had two really bad ingestions, one of which you really didn't want to give oral NAC if you had to give oral charcoal. And this was exceedingly common practice. We would stagger doses every two hours. So acetamin, so NAC oral, two hours later charcoal, two hours later NAC, two hours later charcoal. And we staggered out to endpoints that we made up on the spot because we didn't have any officially anywhere. And, and we looked for kinetic data and it turned out that there was some data out there. Uh, there was six or seven studies all done in normal volunteers. And what they showed in one of the papers was there was the potential of the area under the curve to reduce by 40%. Uh, the, all the other papers showed no change whatsoever within five minutes of each other, no significant change in the AUC. And I can't really explain why just the one did, but we chose to be conservative. So we increased our NAC doses by 40%. Was there a trial? No, this was voodoo. We saw a paper in normal volunteers and we decided to increase the dose of NAC to be conservative because the charcoal two hours later might absorb some of that liquid NAC, which it shouldn't have been doing. Um, and back then we had data. There was a couple of posters that were presented at national meetings that said dialysis could remove NAC to a significant degree. And so we, we would... Uh, we would increase our maintenance doses of NAC by 50%, which meant uh, when we were giving NAC IV in the presence of hemodialysis, we would increase the double, we would double the NAC rate, which meant going from 17 to 35 in our one hour bag. All right, so it used to be easy. We used to do these things, but sometimes patients came in after 24 hours and actually, while it says treat anyway, that's what you guys all do. Back then, until a paper came out in, in the 90s from England, nobody treated those patients. Uh, a couple of people did said, what do we have to lose? But most of us didn't treat at all. So kind of amazing that there was a lot of, oh, it's too late, we can't do anything. That's going to be kind of relevant later on, I think, because we might be missing something here. But there was always that problem with the oral regimen was three days. And we know that the British were able to get away with 20 hours. I'm, I'm picking on the British. I'm sorry. I'm an old white man. I do entitled privilege things and forgive me. But um, we people started playing with uh, dosing regimen durations for the oral. If the oral is, why is the oral 72? Which we'll explain in a few minutes if you don't know. But people started doing very small studies they dropped from 72 to 48 hours, from 48 to 36, 36 to 24, down to 20. There's even a paper out there where the British compared 24 to 12. 
uh, where the British took their 24-hour regimen and compressed it to 12 hours. So all their rates were higher. Um, and, uh, and usually any one study was published. It was clearly inadequately sized to look at things like mortality and also to look at things like uh, incidences of ALT or AST exceeding a thousand because it was really, really rare we see those. And because they showed equivalent benefit, everybody would adopt one because it was, sounded cost-effective and it made us look good. And this actually was kind of formalized in a publication that I'll reference people to, an editorial written by Richard Barry Rumack at that, uh, there's the citation. And it was called Patient-Tailored Treatment for Acetaminophen Poisoning. And I, I really think this is kind of key. So summary, now up to 2004, this is what's going on. I've got that PO regimen, but if we had to give it with charcoal, we increased the NAC by 40%. If we had to do dialysis, we increased it by 100. If we gave the POIB, the right-hand side kind of shows what those, what those dosing per hour rates were for those individual bags. Um, if we were giving it IV and we had charcoal on board, we didn't care about the uh, increasing the NAC dose because it was, it was there, uh, it was being given IV. And then we have the uh, down below the IV doses between the two. And there are clearly some substantial differences between these regimens that I think could give us some insight to when we're trying to look at what rates are we giving on a per kilo basis or a per kilo per hour basis when we struggle with things like concentrations, fluid overload, small, small, tiny people, et cetera. And acetidote gets approved in 2004, really heavily promoted drug. Um, I'm going to highlight some major points. It's the only FDA-approved intravenous product for Tylenol overdose. There are reasons for that. Uh, Me, Johnson, had no desire to spend the money to get their inhalational product approved for IV administration. And it's approved in a three-bag sequence. Uh, by FDA regulation or guideline, I think it's regulation 797, if you use inhalational NAC and give it IV, it is considered a compounded product and thus is not considered FDA approved. Um, but the FDA very specifically, that regulation stated, this was a state regulatory issue and the definitions vary state to state. This is the federal government saying medical cannabis, cannabis is illegal and individual states choosing to pass laws that allow the practice. And if anyone's going to tell me that the state, that I don't, I know my state's practice on what is considered IV. And I would also remind everyone that the FDA guideline is for those institutions that do it on a consistent manner and in, in inordinate amounts in order to avoid costs, uh, in order to avoid, to promote fair competition. There's absolutely no FDA language, by the way, that requires the use of IV neck in the absence of a contraindication to the oral route. Just making sure, I've actually had people try and throw that at me when I tell them that I, I still feel very comfortable with the PO. We're at 457, shoot, I haven't covered hardly anything. All right, less than 5% uh, of all NAC use anymore in the United States is PO. Stage is set, can I do this in two minutes? Basic goal of NAC, guys, what are we doing? We're being really stupid. It shouldn't be what the best dosing strategy is. It should be to improve outcomes. Do we start Do we start someone on a dose of an antihypertensive and stop at the proper dose to start them at? Do, if, if they react to it with an adverse reaction, do we, do we drop back on the dose? No, we, we look at patient response. We have no patient responses that we've agreed upon or have ever actually studied to, to address this issue. So... People have chosen to go with these um, considerations to only use the IV route. 
to come up with preferred number of bags, none of which have been studied. So every one of you that wants to tell me I can't use POIB, who is not using the three bag method, you have just as little ground to stand on as I do. And I'm going to say I don't understand weight-based dosing to some extent. On a per kilo basis, that's less toxin per kilo, but I'm going to give more antidote? Shouldn't I be dosing by how much toxin there is if I can? Next role, we'll discuss, and I'm going to actually try and get to, in the few minutes I'm going to give myself here, can that be bad? So what's the origin of the dosing schedules? Animal data in the 70s showed that sulfhydryl group de de depletion was severe, caused, led to predicted hepatotoxicity. We, tried, we figured out it was glutathione. When 70% of rat glutathione is depleted, you get hepatotoxicity. So people said, that's, uh, that's about 4.2 millimoles total. Uh, when you look at what is uh, human liver is 1.5 liters. So they multiplied 4.2 by 1.5 and came up with, they needed to replicate 6 millimoles of glutathione in a human liver. They took a number from a rat liver and then multiplied by the average size of a human liver. That's called voodoo. They did not do any human volunteer studies. They did not draw liver biopsies from patients who got them to look at it. They came up with a six milligram per kilo load of NAC was necessary, six per kilo. FDA wanted a safety factor. What kind of a safety factor is going from six to 140? Kind of a big one, isn't it? And, and we have all these other stuff. Now, these were all healthy animals who were well-nourished, no other drugs had normal livers. UK chose 20 to 25 hours to approximate a four-hour half-life of acetaminophen. UK noticed that some people were relapsing after they stopped at 20 hours and they, they extended the, the interval. And the UK has gone even farther and said, well, we might be missing people earlier on. So they dropped the level at which they start treatment in order to make sure they didn't accidentally miss people who needed it. Um, late in the 80s, there were two series that showed that people with fulminant hepatic failure, encephalopathy, seizures, uh, comatose, could benefit from NAC if it had been more than 10 hours or later, or 24 is how it's often referred to. And that also led to treating lower and treating no matter what time they came in. In the US, the FDA felt that that duration of four hours based on a normal half-life was inappropriate. And they selected 12 because there was some studies showed that there was increased mortality at 12 hours or longer, even though some patients had even longer than 12. They multiplied that by five, got to 60 hours, but the FDA said nurses don't know how to calculate the 60 and made it three days to be conservative. I, that was a really inappropriate thing to say. Now, this is a paper most people can't get because it's behind a paywall, but Heard in 2010 published a paper and they looked at 503 patients retrospectively who got either IV or PO NAC over the course of a number of years. 52 got both because they switched from one to the other. Overall, the IV route had fewer ADE. Shouldn't be a surprise. There were no serious NAC-related ADEs in any of these patients. And only one-third of all the ADEs reported were by experts who wrote the paper, including some of the tox names of the toxic uh, registry group, thought that the only one-third were actually due to the NAC itself. 169 patients with at least one ADE. 169, 19 of the IV were switched to PO, 25 of the PO were switched to IV. If we assume that the 12 noted to be switched because of a NAC-related ADE, even though they didn't say what where those 12 came from, but if we made all 12 PO patients, 12 out of 173 people, the PO only and the, the ones that got switched to PO, 12 
ended up having an ADE, which was not serious, which is a total of 7% of the patients. 7% had a treatment-stopping nausea or vomiting. I'm wondering again why nausea or vomiting is an absolute indication to stop therapy. I can think of other therapies that cause some vomiting. I can think of a lot of people coming. I'm, I'm, I am trying to reinforce how comfortable I was with the PO because we didn't end up very rarely did we ever see anyone who needed to be removed from it completely. And then there's the issue of anaphylactoid that I'm not really, I'm not gonna get into because I don't think we've studied it very well. So I'm really wondering, do we are we looking at the right ADE as an outcome? Should it be an outcome at all? Well, what should probably be an outcome is did the AD, ADE lead to a need to discontinue the therapy, which would be bad. I just want to throw some numbers at you folks. We talk about the, how bad Tylenol is. You know, on average, there is one death a day in the United States, period. One a day spread across 6,000 hospitals. One. One. 150 people who need liver transplant a day across the United States. There are in the area of 35,000 acetaminophen exposures a year called into poison centers. Could be as high as 50, depending on what year you wanna look at. That's an exceedingly low morbid, major morbidity and mortality rate. I hope everybody understands that. And when we start talking about how we're impacting, we're never gonna have good studies for this. ALT, what's the, what's the right endpoint here? Under 1,000, under 500, three times the upper limit of normal, normal, less than 100, try not to exceed 100. None of these have actually been proven to be correlated to an outcome because we can't do a study big enough. I don't know that I like any of them right now because of some urinary adducts, which might be really good. Measures of the toxic byproducts being formed, not readily available, clinically accessible, financially intelligent. Half-life might be good. But remember, if we look at half-lives, we have to think about what's the half-life of ALT and AST. And they average, respectively, 47 hours for ALT, 17 for AST. So are you going to wait 141 to 235 hours for those to normalize? Are you picking normal when you don't even know baseline? Stop it. And are they getting better? Because sometimes there's no liver left anymore. Well, that's a stupid outcome to use. So I don't know. And guys, does ethanol affect these things? Why aren't the ethanol concentrations ever addressed in these studies? Find me one of the 5,851 acetaminophen clinical trials ever published in PubMed. 121 were clinical trials. It's ridiculous. We Twitterize all this crap. Somebody does a case series and it's tweeted for the world to follow. I'm a little opinionated. How many bags? Oh, I'm I'm gonna I, I'm just gonna skip. How many bags? I. We don't know, and we don't have a good outcome to measure. And I don't like a specific number, and I'm never going to support it. Can NAC maybe be bad? A really, really, really important paper. Preprint only, electronic, no full citation. Akakpo, Rumac, Stephen Curry, Archives of Toxicology 2022. They talk about how NAC and 4-MP impact Tylenol poisoning. NAC clearly prevents the formation of the toxic metabolite. So does 4-MP. NAC is clearly been described in the same rat models that talk about how it's bad and how we can stop being bad and prevent bad with our antidotes. Those same models have shown, if you wait long enough, you can see that NAC impairs hepatic regeneration, impairs it, where 4MP promotes it. A quick summary, 
We have liver cells die all the time. Your only major organ that regenerates is the liver. We cut a third of it out. Biomass, the third, the resection for living-related livers is replaced, 90% of it is replaced in two weeks. Two damn weeks. There are markers for that regeneration. 4MP, those markers go on and on and on after when you use it in the rat model. NAC, the markers don't show at all because it's not, it's suppressing the fact that we have these these systems that react to a small amount of liver cell death to generate new liver cell formation. But if NAC is there preventing all oxidative, all cell breakdown, all mediators of apoptosis, the, the necrotic byproducts from being formed, you don't get the signal loop back to let's make new tissue. It might be that we're going to see ourselves move towards a, we start with NAC and we switch to fomepazole. When we have a marker that says we stopped toxicity destruction, we started regeneration, the people who say, well, let's start fomepazole up front. Did you not see how much fomepazole was used in the United States at $10,000 for a four pack? And now you want to do it for anybody who might have acetaminophen toxicity? Go away. I can't, I need to justify my job. I think NAC dosing is a mess. I don't think we know what we're doing. I think it's all voodoo. I think it should be thoughtful. I'll give you examples of what I like to do. I like to use the PO route whenever I can. I like to recommend it every time. It's hard to get people to do it. I've got my most of my docs do it most of the time. These are the physicians that I work with in Chicago that are the medical backups for the poison center. If I have supply issues and I don't have enough IV, why not give IV and PO? Who said you can't give them together? Excuse me, who said we couldn't do that? We don't need to anywhere else, but who said we couldn't? And I'm really going to, and then if we, if I, why don't we take advantage of that eight hour window and get an actual level to see if we need to, and you're all going to get all twitchy on me, but they, Rumac did those studies all the way down to Q2 hour blocks. You can get that data from him. I worry, I personally worry concentrations over 400 at four hours or their rough equivalent. I get nervous as soon as the half-life is longer than four, I get very nervous with longer than 12. I'm always willing to give more drug right now. Um, if ALT and AST rise after the NAC has started in a way, that's more toxicity. That's more damage. I'm not blocking it all. Maybe I find a way to give more NAC there. Uh, I do worry about nutrition, malnourished people you should be very frightened of. A rat fasted for two days, two days, two days of fasting in a rat and therapeutic doses of acetaminophen can cause hepatotoxicity like an overdose. And uh, I like to stop when my Tylenol level is less than 30. There's very little there. And ALT and AST are declining over at least three determinations. And maybe one of these days I'll be adding phosphate or alpha fetoprotein to be, if they start going up, if the phosph if AFP goes up and the phosphate's going down, liver's regenerating. I like that. I might accidentally uncover a hepatic carcinoma there, but that would seem to push the boundaries. Uh, which one of these is true about NAC? Um, and the only one that's true is that the FDA regimen specifies a three-bag regimen. The rest are, might look good, but I'm not going to give you time to read them. And what is the factor not yet considered or resolved for using NAC? And it's all of them are true. I'll go backwards for a second. The infusion rate, we actually don't know. Bateman did a study in 2004 showing in compressing to 12 hours, infusing everything faster. They had one-fourth the number of anaphylactoid reactions. So the loading dose was faster. Uh, and yet they had left. I don't know. I don't think we actually know. Treatment endpoint, we don't know. Weight, dose, what do we, I don't know. I don't know. And then the last one, these are all settings. An inadequate supply, NAC will give PO and IV. 
or give PO and then give ID and then switch to PO. Or if they can take PO, start take PO, start PO and then switch to IV. They're being transferred. If they're coming from your hospital and going somewhere else, Sebastian, give them a damn PO load up front, not worry about the IV line running in. And I'm just going to stop because I went too long. I'm sorry, guys. All right, guys. So you was able to hear Frank have his phenomenal voted the number one presentation from Empower Conference from last year and him to talk about acetaminophen dosing. So, guys, what I want you to do again is continue to uh, support the pod. But again, I really want to see you guys at the Empower Conference in person. If possible, we have some resources for you guys if you absolutely can't make it. But I promise you, you want to be there in person to witness all the crazy things that we have set for you guys. Phenomenal presentation it's gonna be great so thank you guys for listening to another episode of farm so hard we have a significant amount of stuff for you guys that's gonna be great this year and we're just super excited to have you guys and we're gonna close it out the same way we always do you don't have to be a pharmacist you don't work in ed but everything you do make sure you farm so hard whatever she's looking for it isn't in there